Hi, I'm Jerry Grant, and this is a series of programs we're calling Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark, the voice of the University of Delaware. I'll be interviewing some of my fellow VUD jocks to find out what path they took to arrive here at the radio station. We'll discuss their earliest experiences with music and radio and how those experiences inform their own show currently on WVUD. Today's guest is Linda Berryhill Vroman, one of the hosts of our popular Sunday morning program, The Morning After. Linda, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jerry. And aren't all our shows popular <laughs> with someone, right? That's in my prepared remarks there, as we say, yes. <laughs> so we called you by your maiden name and your married name today. So you, how long have you been with the station? I joined the station in September 1975. And you were a student then? I was a freshman, and I saw one of those little signs up on a bulletin board, and I came to the meeting, and it was a bunch of heads, and I was interested in them. They were upper upperclassmen, and they were interested in me. Al Engberg, uh-huh. uh, Ron Krause, Pete Simon, and uh, we went on even after the meeting, and I was in. They were heads of, of, of different programming blocks in, on the station. Is that correct? Yes. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, and also, like, Pete Simon was the program director. I think Al might have been the music director. I mean, they had, uh, you know, significant functions at the radio station. Let's go back. Why don't you tell us where you were born and where you grew up? I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, off of Crooker Highway, so kind of halfway between Wilmington and Newark, and... Uh, Grew up in the suburbs, the suburbs of Wilmington. My sister was taking piano lessons. I picked up a guitar. I started playing with a guitar um, pretty early on. Didn't keep at it, though. Um, mm-hmm. was, there, um, was there radio in the house? Did people listen to the radio? Not really, but there was music. My dad was huge into um, what we would call bluegrass traditional music so we had flat and scruggs records um he loved the i don't want to call it old timey because i've heard that in reference to rush and acdc if you ask a little kid now they'll call acdc old timey music whoa but back in the day so my dad was from north carolina and he loved that rural free delivery kind of stuff oh yeah well how about that my mother was from austria we had some yodeling records we had some german beer song records and i remember one it was the ink spots sure sure yeah we had an ink spots record in my house too yeah i didn't really like it too much though (laughs) now you mentioned your mother why don't we just say your mother was was kind of a a public person in delaware right yes my mother frida berryhill yeah she uh, founded the coalition for nuclear power plant postponement and she was active in uh, stopping a power plant from being built in Delaware. Of course, they just went across the river into Salem, New Jersey. But Right, I remember. She was very vocal. Very, Her name was in the paper all the time. Yes. Uh, so, so you had uh, uh, German beer songs and, and bluegrass. Very, yeah, very, very different. In the morning after rotation, it's a rotation of older jocks, including you and, you and me. What, what do you, what's your kind of show like when you do it on Sunday mornings? Well, um, a couple of years ago, I asked a friend of mine, Lisa, to join me just, you know, as a lark. And I said, let's play music about flowers. And the next thing I know, she's been with me uh, ever since. So we've been doing themes 
which has made me look at my record library a lot differently. So if we do a theme on places or a theme on clothing or a theme on rain or the moon or you name it, there's themes on all kinds of stuff. I play music from my library and from this library that I wouldn't have picked out before. So I have enjoyed that. But typically, my radio show would be Mellow Electronica. I love electronica early and go into some world theme stuff and then singer songwriters folk music get into some a little maybe a little jazz and then rock out cool yeah what's early electronica can i ask oh like tangerine dream uh artists like that klaus schultz uh we actually at one time had an extensive electronics library here at the radio station. I also did, uh, wow, probably a couple of years where me and Drew Manasian did uh, The Morning After together too. That was a lot of fun because he would do a set and then I would do a set and we would play off of each other. Like his music reminded me of this and my music would remind him of that. So we uh, cluttered up the studio with our music and would be running off into the library to find just the thing that would fit with that. When you first came to the station, what kind of a show did you, did you do a music show or did you do news or what did you do? I did. I actually had to study for my um, operator's license. It was back in the day. There was a little operator's handbook. It had a lot of math in it <laughs> and math was very challenging for me, but I had mm -hmm. to go up to Philadelphia. I had to take a test Man. And I got my third class operator's license, and it was issued to me on um, September 7th, 1976. And does displaying said license? Yes, to me, you'll this have little to take piece of paper. Yes. Um, and I was given um, satisfactory reports from Ron Krause, who was the general manager, and then George Stewart, who was the general manager. And then in 1979, I gave my own self satisfactory signature. <laughs> So when I first came to the radio station, I was I had a, an extensive collection of 45s because that's what you gave each other as teeny boppers, you know, even even preteens. We were starting to collect 45s. So I would come down and play the 45s. But of course, 45s are representative of the most popular songs of the artists. And after I did a couple of shows with all my 45s, they banned the playing of 45s at WDRB at the time. I should have asked you when you first came. It was DRB when you first came. Yes, yeah, it was okay. DRB. So we were still uh, carrier, current carrier current at that time. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, which meant the signal only went into the dorms. That's, so they banned 45s. That's kind of funny. Yeah. I, I loved, of course, I loved 45s, and we would bring them to parties and stuff, and most usually it was a cool time, but sometimes people would say, oh, 45s, oh, I started doing um, Over Easy or Java Time and all those various. Right. The blocks have all had different names. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. But it was more. It was mornings. And I lived up above Sam's Steakhouse on Academy Street. Yeah, I remember it well. And mm -hmm. Sam had a bread box out in the alleyway. So I would come down my stairs from my apartment and walk out the alley to come down to the radio station. And there would be a little wax paper bag on top of the bread box because they had made a bread delivery and it would have like a bear claw in it or some kind of yummy sugary pastry thing and well how lovely is that i get to eat a yummy sugary pastry on my way it was for you no <laughs> it wasn't for me 
so I was amped up by the time I got to the radio station. But, you know, when you're a teenager, you can eat bear claws. So it's really just this Jackie Confidential here. You're, yeah. you're confessing crimes from yeah. your youth. That's yes. good. That's good. So you made it eventually to general manager, I forget, or music director? I did. I, or, was, or I became a music director. Um, and I remember Jim Godwin was the one who kind of trained me. So the, the job of music director is to send out um, biweekly reports to all the people who send us music to indicate what our top playing albums are in the hopes that they will send us more, which they would. So I did that for a year. And this is the funny story. So I was doing that in 1977. And this album came in to the station and I put it on. And I don't know about you, but there are a lot of uh, disc jockeys here, DJs, I should say, who can... We can literally drop the needle down and listen for five seconds, ten seconds, maybe not even that long. You just listen and you can hear whether the song's any good, you know, when you're trying to find the song you want to play. So I'm one of those people who I do my shows on the fly. It's not all pre-arranged. Right. And I play probably 20% of stuff I've never heard before. So I need to go through and, and listen to what it is, what tracks might be good. So this album comes into the station, I put it on, I go through it, and I'm like, oh my God, what is this crap? This is awful. And I threw it in the bin to be tossed out. Well, there was a big uproar. You can't throw that out. This is important music. This is the album I was going to throw out. Oh, and she's holding up a copy of Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. Bad Out of Hell. If I'm looking at it going, what the hell? It's this guy on a motorcycle. It's, it's not even a guy. Like, what? what is this? And it was just to my pubescent ears <laughs> really annoying. But as it turns out, it's a classic album, and we still have it here at the station. Well, good for you. Some of us might say that, you know, your, your taste was impeccable, actually. But uh, <laughs> that's fine. You can still find a copy there. That's great. Yeah, and there's our, our little color coding. We, we put tape on the, on the spine on the spine to indicate which part of the library it should go into. Linda's working with props here. It's very good. I'm, I love the fact you brought all these things to the show. It's great. All right, so then, so you were the music director, uh, and I remember used to, I used to own a record store with some other guys, BJ and Don, on Main Street, and we sold used records, so we would take trade-ins of stuff, and so you would bring stuff that you didn't like, and or, or that, I guess, by a vote, people or, didn't like or whatever. Or and, we had extras. Or you had doubles, yeah. right, yeah, and trade them in for other stuff. I remember that all the time. That was fun. We still have some albums with the little I like it like that stickers on them. I've pulled them out every now and then. I'm yeah. like, there you go. Yeah, like people like tell that. me that all the time. It's fun to hear that. So so we're following a funny trajectory here, but we'll stay with um, – so when you graduated, uh, did did your time with the radio station end at that time, or did you keep going, or how did how'd that work out? Oh, no. I um, Well, after I was music director, I, I was music director until uh, December of 1978, and then I was voted in as general manager. So for my senior year, only the problem was, it may be different now, I'm not sure, the year was from January to December instead of a school year. Oh, I see. Okay. So I was scheduled to graduate in 
June of 1979, but now I'm voted in as general manager, and I have to be a full-time matriculated student the entire time I'm the station or the general manager. And uh, so I had to sign up for an extra semester of classes in the fall. Wow. So that's how I got a double major in, in English and communications. Oh, great. But it was a very trying year. The FCC came down with a ruling that they were going to eliminate 10-watt radio stations from the non-commercial broadcast band of the dial because I think they wanted to clean out the flack. And we were a 10-watt radio station, so we needed to upgrade to a minimum of 100 watts. And, of course, the price differential wasn't that great for us to go to 1,000 or to go to 1,000 watts in stereo. So that was basically my entire career as general manager because I was also the chairperson on the board of directors. So I was calling all these meetings and having all of these meetings and meeting with the engineer, meeting with people all over campus, trying to convince them that, yeah, hey, you know, we're a, we want to be a radio station. We're really good. You know, we're the mm-hmm. growing phenomenally. We were up on the third floor still at that time. You remember that? I sure do, yeah. It was mm-hmm. a tiny little space. I was pleading with them to give us some more space down the hallway up there. The student center would lock up at night. They would lock up over holidays. And oh. we still need to get in and out of the station. So I remember Paul Campbell was the general manager before me, and he developed this, like, honking system. So we would stand outside the studio on the outside on the ground and honk up to the third floor and hope that the DJ would hear us and come down the stairwell to let us in. <laughs> it was Wow. Yeah, they were really trying times. So did you get so did you get the up the increase when you were here or did did you start the process and it happened later on or we got it you got it yes but it took a couple of years to actually do the upgrade and that's when they moved us down here into the basement we could have our own dedicated space because you could any student could just walk into the station go through our record library walk Uh, out you know stuff would walk all the time it was just it was unsecured i should we're talking about the perkins student center on academy street here in newark is the third floor and the basement that's They've been the two homes, at least since I've been here, right? Yes. Uh, that's pretty good. I should ask, at this point, maybe it's a good time to ask, what's your day job today I as we speak? I am a physical therapist. I graduated with a, with a double major, English and Communications, and I went on to work for Fine Times Magazine. I worked for the Dale Melton um, Empire in Wilmington, Delaware, which was funny because I lived on Main Street in Newark, and I would commute into Wilmington. That's funny. That, this, this is an entertainment newspaper um, that— Published, Bands. Published weekly yeah. or monthly? or Once a month. Once a month. It came out. Yeah, it, Fine Times Magazine. Based in Wilmington, right? Sure. Yes. That lasted for a fairly long time, yes. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I started as a uh, sales manager, did some writing for it. Um, you were mentioning earlier, uh, George Stewart had John Cale come to the State Theater, and I interviewed him. I did a backstage interview, and he was so non-communicative because here I am, this, like, you know, little girl, and he had been— <laughs> mistaken for J.J. Kale, who, of course, is a renowned musician in his own right, but completely different genres. Oh, yeah. And he figured I thought he was J.J. Kale. And I, (laughs) are you kidding? I know John Kale is. So he did, he did lighten up. I got to talk to Steve Forbert, 
upstairs at the Stone Balloon because the Stone Balloon was one of my accounts. I would be there until 3 o'clock in the morning with Bill Stevenson. So I lived mm-hmm. right across the street. So often what I would do is just go to bed and set my alarm for 1 o'clock in the morning, and that's when I would go over and follow Bill around while he's paying the band and paying the bartenders. And then we'd finally go upstairs, and I would get his you know monthly lineup. Cool. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and then so what did you do after that? We'll just keep going after you worked at Fine Times. and. Uh, I mean, as far as your day job goes. Yeah, that was fun, though. Tommy Conwell was coming in. We were always having all these musicians coming in. Oh, sure. You know, uh, Tommy Alderson, uh, heartthrob. <laughs> and he's still making music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he is, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, I, I had an automobile accident, and I smashed up my kneecap, and I had to get physical therapy. And I was considering really getting out of the publishing business because I became general manager of Fine Times and it was a big, it was a lot of work. Sure, yeah. I was thinking about going to massage school and Dave Gazera, who was another old DJ here, was in the nursing program at university and he said, well, listen, you know, why don't you become like a nurse or a physical therapist because you can get into the third-party payment system? I had no idea what he was talking about, but physical therapist sounded cool. So that's what I did. University of Delaware was offering a bachelor's in physical therapy, and I already had a double bachelor, and I had no interest in getting another one. And they said, well, if you wait two years, we're upgrading our program to a master's. So in the meantime, I went out to Boulder, Colorado, and became a massage therapist. Boulder, Colorado was a lot of fun. Got a a radio show there at KGNU. Came back to Wilmington and uh, went to the University of Delaware. So, And then, of course, now that I'm back in Newark, I pick up a radio show again, and that's when I started doing the morning after. Oh, so you've been doing it a long time then. So that's like 90 or? or yeah, yeah, 1990. Okay. Yeah. Wow, good for you. We'll go back to your growing up. So your sister played piano, um, and you have at least one brother, right? I have, yeah, two brothers. Two I have an brothers. older brother and a younger brother. Did anybody else play music in the house? My, my mother played a ukulele. Wow. Yeah, apparently when they were all kids, they had to learn to play ukulele. So she would, and, and she played it real fast, real, real fast strumming ukulele and then yodel, yodel with it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, yodeling's still alive and well. I mean, you know, you go to the Bluegrass Festival, usually you'll catch a yodeler or two. And my dad played the juice harp. Oh, yeah. So we had a couple of those around where it's that metal you put in your mouth and you twang <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Wow. Oh, that's very musical. That's a very musical upbringing yeah, you had. Yes. So where'd you go to grade school? I went to uh, Laura Little, and then they uh, expanded because the um, that area off Kirkwood Highway was the suburbs were exploding, so they built Heritage Elementary. So I went to Heritage Elementary for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, and I cannot, for the life of me, remember anything about fourth grade, except making bread molds. There won't be any questions about fourth grade. <laughs> no, but is that funny? Although I remember learning to play the violin, like in in fifth grade, music class was very well rounded. Do you remember that? I went to Catholic school where it was nuns blowing into pitch pipes all the time, I and mean, we didn't really play instruments. There. Oh, we got lots mm-hmm. of instru- instruments to play. Yeah, I mean, it would be okay for two weeks. We're going to do do the violin for you know three weeks. We're going to do you know macarenas or something. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember I wanted to play the clarinet for some reason. I never actually played a clarinet. I wasn't good at that, like, blowing across holes thing. And uh, But I wanted to play the clarinet. My mother handed me a recorder. 
you know, basic, simple recorder and, mm-hmm. and a book. And she said, learn a couple songs and we'll see if we'll, you know, you can play clarinet. I didn't want to do that. So I didn't. And so I never did play clarinet. I'll tell you, I've done about, I think you're like the 11th interview that I've done, I've done so far. And we've already had like three, I think, failed clarinet players already in on the WVUD staff here. So you're lucky. That went on to play clarinet? Yeah, but, wow. but poorly. I mean, they started, I should say they started out playing clarinet and decided on their own that it was not the way to go. So you probably made the right decision, I think. Well, my mother made it for me, but. So then you go to high school. And that's when I really got into guitar. I picked up a guitar in probably ninth grade. Our ninth grade was in was still part of junior high, uh, mm-hmm. Skyline Junior High. And then uh, Dickinson was my high school. Okay. And the music teacher knew that I was playing guitar and writing songs, and he invited me back to Skyline Junior High to play for his music classes to like inspire them in some way because here's this you know lovely buxom brunette. <laughs> Uh-huh. Which is probably the main reason why I was there, but uh, <laughs> so right. I played songs, so it was fun. There was a, a picture of me in the um, Dickinson um, yearbook. It was like a full page picture of me holding my guitar wow. with my puffy sleeves. Uh- <laughs> Those were the days. Oh, uh, that's great! So you were making music in high school. I mean, just for yourself, but I mean, but people knew you were doing it, and you got called back in mm-hmm. to do it and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, Neil Young was the easiest to play. So I was playing lots of Neil Young, and I was I was writing songs, too. Right. So this is the early 70s or the, mm-hmm. mid, the mid-70s, kind of. Yeah. And then I guess I turned, uh, what, 14 and um, really got into listening to music. So I had an older brother, and I would come home and put the headphones on and listen to Jethro, Tell, Jethro Tull's Aqualung, like, daily i would listen to this thing in headphones sitting on a park yeah i remember it well yes i remember it well did you ever play in a band or anything or you just played for yourself never played in a band no also so at dickinson would you go out to like dances or anything in high school oh my goodness yes yes oh yeah the dance we went to McCain, we went to Dickinson, we went to the Electric Gramophone, we went to St. Mark's. Oh, the Electric Gramophone. Yeah, the Electric Gramophone, remember that? Yeah, this is on Stanton Road or yes. whatever it's called out there. Sure, it was a yeah. former A.M.P. I think. Yes. Or an A.M.P. food store. I saw the tramps there. Um, I, like, wow. I, even, I think it was even like in the daytime, I think. It was like in the afternoon, the tramps were going to be there, and there they were. And uh, they only, they played, you know, people make jokes about disco that it all sounds the same. But they would literally, they never stopped. They started and, you know, the bass pattern would change and it would be another song. It was it was an interesting show, but it was packed uh, with people and it was like, here's the tramps, can you believe it? We went to a lot of dances. I remember when um, something, something in the way she moves, the, the Beatles. Oh my God, what a great slow song that was. <laughs> wow. That was the best time to just, you know, cozy up to a guy you had a crush on. and Ladies' choice. Yeah. Shuffle mm-hmm. your feet around and just be in heaven, <laughs> listening, dancing to something. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed this, the, uh, the dances. And what were the fast dances then? Was, was it, are we in the disco era? Oh, no. You're talking uh, like Motown. So, and the fast dances... All the girls would scurry onto the dance floor and do line dances. 
So if you didn't know the line dance, you didn't dance. I mean, you could shuffle around, but when right. you're an uh, insecure teenager, you don't want to go out there and make a fool of yourself, although nobody's watching. It doesn't matter anyway. Right, but right. But yeah, you, you, you have to have your north, southeast, your northeast, south, and west going. Yeah, right. you have to know your yeah. line dances. So right. um, girls would practice line dances in school during uh, lunchtime. I remember somebody would play music. We'd play Motown primarily and line dance. Wow, okay. A lot of people have memories of music at lunchtime, and I just remember we ate lunch in fear, basically, where, where, where I went. Like, oh, there was scary. lots lots of violence at lunch and this, you know, whatever. Uh, but that's another that's another show. Where do you fall in? Are you the oldest in the family or? No, I'm the second oldest. Second oldest. First okay. girl. You, uh, you had your brother's records were in the house when you were growing up, I guess. Yes. And what were they? Yeah, instance? very influential. So he had the Woodstock, uh, Black Sabbath. Which actually wasn't too bad. Um, Bachman Turner, overweight. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jethro Tull, of course. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you remember the first record that you bought with your own money? It was a forty-five. It probably was Jim Croce, but I wasn't really that into it until I hit um, high school. So I remember one of the very first significant records that I bought with my own money was Spirit. 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus. Mm. What a great, I was hanging out with the upperclassmen and uh, I got turned on to that and that was really, really fabulous. I love that album. Is that with I Got a Line on You or no? No, it's Nature's Way. That was their big hit. All right, Nature's Way. Right, right, right. So when I turned 16, I got a bunch of money and I went down to Wonderland Records and I bought the complete Beatles uh, catalog. It was uh, over a hundred dollars, but I didn't have any of the Beatles records. And you know, the first ones came out so early in the sixties, but that music was so influential. It was easy to sing when you're a kid. I mean, it really, I think it really, um, influenced a lot of our approaches to love life, even because you're singing about, I want to hold your hand as a, you know, six year old, seven year old. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I bought all the Beatles wow. albums. Yeah. Was it an inheritance you came in or a robbery? Or how'd you no, come? I turned 16. Oh, you turned 16. Yeah, so I, I got see. a lot of money for my birthday. Great. And that's how I decided to spend it. Very good. Yes, and I, and I can say also, I, I wanted to look and see when this came out. Neil Young's After the Gold Rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another one I just could not put down. I could tell you that it was probably 72, probably. 72, yeah. yeah. So Aqualung mm-hmm. came out in 71. There was another song that came out in 1971 that my brother bought on a 45, and it was uh, by a Texas band called Blood Rock, and it was D-O-A. It was the initials D-O-A, and it was very dark, creepy. It started with a because it's a song about dead on arrival. Oh, I see. Okay. So that was I was already starting to get into the kind of like dark stuff. Metal or almost, mm-hmm. almost not quite as loud. That's why I didn't like the meatloaf. But <laughs> I mean, I was listening to Black Sabbath. Anything yep, else? Yeah, that's good. Is that good? Mm-hmm. Thanks again, Linda. Thank you. Um. <laughs> well, then, so there, you're buying that stuff in high school, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was All buying right. albums in high school. I dated a guy who had a fairly extensive album collection, and he was inspiring. For me. So I wasn't listening to radio a whole lot. I didn't, you know, when I was younger, it was whams. But really just in the morning, getting ready to go to school, 
But when I got home, it was records. We were listening to records. Right. We weren't listening to the radio. Yeah, Until but, then, you've got MMR starts, IOQ. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. YSP was a music station at the time. Right, yeah. exactly. Exactly, right, 94.1, right. And uh, what was the one you said before that? Oh, IOQ. IOQ. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I was an undergraduate communications major, I went up to Philadelphia and I went to all these radio stations because I wrote a paper on the voice that sells Philadelphia. And I met those guys, um, Pierre Robert. Um, David Dye was actually, I think he was with MMR at uh, the time. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Ed Shockey, was he still there? Ed Shockey, mm -hmm. yes. Michael Tierson. Michael Tierson. I was trying to remember that name the other day. That's the name. He still comes to the Bluegrass Festival once in a while. So yeah. a couple of years ago, my husband and I were in a rental car driving around Puerto Rico, the big island, and we put on Sirius FM because it came with the car. And mm -hmm. I put on like, I don't know, deep tracks or something. And yeah. here is this unmistakable voice talking about some shows that are coming to Philadelphia. And it's Michael Tierson. And I'm like, I'm in Puerto Rico listening to Michael Tierson <laughs> talk about Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. Radio has changed a lot. Yep. Um, well, I'll tell you, let's just pause here one second. Um. In in high school, did you hear much live music? Did you go out and I mean, would like at a at a dance or just or any kind of a concert, quote unquote, or I mean, rock or otherwise? The or? concerts were were big deals. The concerts were going to the Spectrum, going up to Philly. I didn't see live music um, around here. Right, right, right. Yeah, so okay. I think when my very first concert, which my boyfriend with the extensive record library took me to, was Led Zeppelin was the headliner. And it was up at the Coliseum in New York, I think Long Island, I'm not sure, um, Blue Oyster Cult and Climax Blues Band. Wow, okay. Oh, my God. It was such a great experience. It blew my mind. It was amazing. And we were so far away. And Robert Plant was just, you know, a couple of inches on the stage there. But by God, mm -hmm. he was looking right at me. <laughs> <laughs> and they were famous for being loud at that point, right? Oh, yeah. it was great. Yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you could see the socks in his pants. <laughs> from Even from that far away, Linda, I could tell he, Linda. he dressed to the left. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, I, th you know, I kind of think we have enough here. Let's see. Um, uh, why don't you just tell me what your favorite concerts were you saw besides that? I mean, in, did you go to a lot of concerts in your lifetime? You probably did. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny. I've been saving. I saved all my all my slips. Stubs. Um, mm -hmm. And it's amazing. Some of the shows that I saw, like, wow, I don't even remember seeing that, seeing that show. But I have the proof that I was there. Um, there was this uh, trio of sisters. Um, they were from North Jersey, but they live in New York City called the Roaches. Oh, the Roaches, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Maggie has since passed away. Right. But. Any show I went to with them was fabulous. I was visiting a friend of mine in Austin, Texas, and they were playing downtown. So we went to the show, and Maggie, oh, no, no, it was her sister, Suzzy, um, literally collapsed on stage. They were into their just their second song, 
and the three of them are singing and they're into their microphones and Suzzy falls to the stage and the other two are still singing. They don't realize that she's fallen until suddenly they now hear that they can't hear her and they turn. And uh, we all thought, is this part of the shtick? And uh, Maggie was like, you know, is there a doctor in the house? This is for real. And they rescheduled it for the next night. Wow. And they performed the next night. Yeah. That's funny, you know, because uh, we've seen the Roaches a couple times. Uh, but one time we went up to see them at uh, Penn's Landing and Tom Rush was opening. And we went, we, we, Sheila and I went with a woman I worked with at the time. And Liza was probably three months or six months or something like that. And we thought, we'll take Liza up to see the Roaches. And Tom Rush, I think, opened. And I think he'd already finished. And when we got there, and suddenly we're walking towards the stage and there's like some garbage kind of like blown around or something. We're just thinking, oh, we're in Philadelphia or something. And it ends up turned into be like a full-blown tornado. It starts to rain and we've got Liza like under an awning of a store or something and just thinking, oh God, here we are bringing our infant out into a tornado. We're going to get arrested or something. And uh, it was a full, it actually was a tornado that started like in Hocassin and went all the way over to Camden. Uh, you know, just it was a big deal at the time, but that was, we never saw the roaches at that show. How about that? Wow. That's weird. I saw them up there at Penn's Landing too. Yeah. yeah. I've seen them all over the place. Grand Opera House. Um, as a matter of fact, when David Bromberg opened his little 4W5 mm-hmm. on uh, Market Street, uh, Maggie and Terry came. Suzzy wasn't there. So they have this one song they sing, We Are Maggie and Terry and Suzzy. And yeah. they would just mm-hmm. not sing her name. <laughs> It was oh, a that's hoot. cool. It was a hoot. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah, they were a lot of fun. That, they were probably my favorite. Um, one of the most amazing shows I ever saw was a two-day show by Laurie Anderson in Brooklyn. Yeah, she's an experimental artist. Uh, wow. hmm It was amazing. We had to spend the night overnight. Um, Yoko Ono was in the uh, audience. I remember seeing her. There were probably a lot of other people who were there, but I I wasn't paying attention to the audience. I was paying attention to the show. Yeah, sure. But yeah, it was like three hours on Saturday and four hours on Sunday. It was a long show, but it was ama- it just blew me away. Laurie Anderson, what a genius! Wow, more more performance art than just music, but right, yeah. Did she sing or just talk? Did she sang and. And talked mm-hmm. her narrations. Yeah, she's done some crazy stuff since then where she, you know, changes her voice and tells these, she takes on these personas and tells these odd stories. And yeah, mm-hmm. that was a great, great show. Now that you ask me, it's funny. All yeah. these memories are streaming back in, mm-hmm. talking heads. Ugh, so good. Did you ever, ever go up to the other side? It was called the other side on 202. Um, it was like now it's where the, the, the 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 town center is or something like that. It's where Target is now or something. But it was on. It had been a disco before. It was on. The Brandy Ron racetrack was there, and then there was a disco kind of, and it it went out. So they just took half of it and called it the other side. And they had that's where we saw Talking Heads, Tom Petty, uh, the Dictators, uh, Southside Johnny, the Persuasions. I don't know. Just I remember we we saw. Um, uh, David Byrne, Talking Heads. We saw Talking Heads, and he would, they'd play a song, and he'd go, song number two? <laughs> and then they'd play the second song. You know, you could never tell whether he was kidding or not. Yes. You know what I mean? Right. Wow, I never went I mean, there. Okay, I we saw Tom Petty. There. We're looking at his 
dental work we were up so i mean it was because they only had them like on risers and stuff like that it was amazing anyway all right this is a uh, linda thinking of some other things after on about the uh, w bud or drb wxdr wxdr yeah. okay so you were talking about hanging microphones in stairwells so when I was music director, of course, I got to review and process all the music that was coming in, which was an expanding education in music. And that's when I realized I really like electronica, really liked, uh, you know, the Klaus Schulte and um, Eno and uh, Tangerine Dream, the really old guys now. Right. And so I started doing a late night uh, radio show called The Cosmic Crack. And it was based on a book at the time I was reading called The Crack in the Cosmic Egg. I was reading it for Walt Reichel's communications class. He was the faculty advisor at the time, right, of, of VUD? Or? Well, he was my professor also. Oh, okay. But um, so I would do all of these um, performances. I would have people come. Bob Ross was one of them. And Bob sat out in the hallway, I think probably down on the second floor. And we hung a microphone down over the stairwell railing and just hung it in the space. And he played. And it was genius. It was so amazing to do that. Wow. I should say, in case things get cut out, but Bob Ross was a local guitar maker and player uh, in in Newark uh, in the uh, 70s and maybe into the 80s, I guess. Yeah. Yes. And uh, he had his own little, he had a, a very little, small, little, I hate to call it a shack. It wasn't run down, but it was that size. It was small on Delaware Avenue behind the stone balloon. And I think one night somebody, drunk driver, like went through the shack, right? Didn't oh, I mean, did they? I, 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 that's always the story I heard. Didn't, he lost all that he had or something in that, but maybe that's, maybe that's a myth. I don't know, but he was a, a excellent player and, uh, a very warped sense of humor and, yes. and and put on some great shows uh in Newark in those days. Yeah, he did a did a concert at the uh State Theater. Right. Showing up as the Christian Snipers with Tommy Conwell on drums. Tommy Conwell on drums, yeah. drums and and Phil Hutchins Hutchings or Hutchinson I think on keyboards and uh, uh Bob uh, led was lead guitarist and singer and he came out dressed in a Girl Scout uniform and had a box which had contained stay free mini pads at one time. And, but he comes out and I guess he puts his guitar down and starts throwing popcorn to the crowd out of this box. So it was full of popcorn, but he was yelling, stay free, stay free <laughs> as if it was some political message or something. Anyway. All right. And so what else did you do? Go ahead. One of the other things was um, we would put uh, posters from albums all over the station. Very, very uh, elaborately decorated uh, in addition to comments, you'll find comments written on a lot of the albums at the time. As a matter of fact, this Meatloaf album, it says, um, let go of my bra. She's being <laughs> hugged by uh, some guy. There's this goofy, goofy stuff. The Led yes. Zeppelin albums have a lot of funny stuff written on them. Um, I had a psychic in, and she was sitting in production too, and I said, uh, can you do readings from photographs? And she said, oh, yes, I can. And I said, well, how about that poster right above your head and it was a poster of frank zappa from chic your booty and he looked up she looked up at it and she said well he's a troubled soul he's very troubled and he's uh, extremely creative but he has some demons to resolve mm -hmm. and i actually got a chance to say that 
I had a conversation with Frank Zappa. We ended up in New York City, and we were at the Mud Club, and it, it was late. I'd already been to Saturday Night Live. Whoa. Yeah, we accidentally, on purpose, Kismet got into the show because uh, they had extra tickets. Blondie was in the audience, and David Bowie was performing. Wow. So we go down into the village, and there is the it's the end of a birthday party for Frank Zappa. And people were in a line, and it wasn't a very long line. And my friend, uh, she was a drummer for a rock and roll band. She went on to live in New York City for a while. Um, we, of course, got into line. So I actually got to sit down next to him and tell him my little psychic story. And he said, yeah, I don't put much you stock. Know, stock in psychics. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. I actually got to to speak with him, so that was cool. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So um, it was fun to bring people in, and then we were tr always trying to have uh, concerts to raise money for WXDR. So we would have uh, All You Can Eat was Dale Dalabrita. And uh, he called himself Toby Celery, and he would. Uh, there was a concert we had. It was a benefit concert for one dollar, all you can eat at Mitchell Hall, and they were throwing vegetables out into the audience. I remember them particularly throwing the celery out. Toby Celery. <laughs> we should say their big hit was the Dietary Secrets of Attila the Hunt, <laughs> and the music went for a while. And what was it? Item number one: steak tartare. Anyway. You had to be there, but I remember that was that was an interesting band for sure. They were yeah. all like guys that worked at the News Journal or something. I think yes. it was all yeah, yeah. Um, we had George Thurgood perform with us many times. I have a um, a flyer here it was George Thurgood um, along with the Rocket eighty eight band, and oddly enough, Hank Carter is actually playing for Rocket eighty eight and not for George Thurgood. Right, that must Go be that there. was before Hank joined. I guess Join, uh, Hank didn't really join until like the third album or so. Oh, okay. I think the first two albums he's not on. If I think, I'll, if it's wrong, I'll I'll delete this from the conversation. Yeah. But that's pretty early, and that's a, a re, uh, yeah. And this is a state a, theater concert. A benefit for the jazz. station. For the yeah, station. they were all we we would have oh um, concerts a lot to raise money for um, any way we could. Um, so there was the debacle of George Thurgood at the Clayton Hall. Um, and I inherited that when I came in as general manager. Apparently, back in the day, you could smoke and drink in university facilities. So there was a lot of uh, beer drinking and cigarette smoking. And in Clayton Hall, uh, the carpeting got destroyed. People were putting their cigarettes out on the carpet. And Clayton Hall, um, you know, sued us or fined us or we had to pay. Right. Clayton Hall, Clayton Hall, as we speak, in 2019 is still uh, a popular meeting room or gathering room or event room or whatever uh, on New London Road, 896, here in Newark. So they must have replaced the carpet, I guess. They didn't. Mm -hmm. um, they charged <laughs> us, and, and this is the way it was reported back to me, but they charged us twenty over $2,300, which was huge. We were just a student organization. We didn't have – there were no professional um, – <clears throat> faculty there wasn't anything it was just us now we were a big student organization we're one of the biggest ones on campus because we had about 90 members and we were open we were running like 21 hours a day seven days a week 
someone went up there after we paid the bill off and found that what they had done was put um, carpet fibers in all the holes and ironed over them. Uh, they repaired the carpeting that way. They didn't actually rip mm, it up and replace it. I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, the struggle, the struggle to raise money. We had a radiothon in 1979 and made $1,800. So now was that bad at the time or was it good? That was good for people just giving you money. Yeah. Because I think, uh, I think I came here in 78, I think, I mean, with the radio and, uh, Ron Whitehead had the gimmick that year for Radiothon was to get people in from the community instead of just having students do it. So they went around and asked different people. They asked me and BJ at the record store if we would come and do a show, an, an oldie show or something like that. But we just played all black music instead. Uh, you know, anyway, and that was how we started. And then, and Dave Gazzara was our engineer. And then, we said, oh, yeah, this is fun. And Dave said, oh, you, you guys can learn how to do this stuff. And then we were in. That's how you got recruited how, was because of a radiothon? How yeah, cool right, is that? Yeah, yeah, we just came in to raise money. Yeah, it was, it was cool. Ron Whitehead, I think there's some other people who were there that way too. But Ron was great. At rec I think he recruited Jose Prado and uh, Carl. I want to say recruited. I don't know how active it was, but they all kind of arrived during his tenure, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Carl Goldstein and, and the Yes. The bluegrass people. Yeah. Oh, I, he was fabulous. He was an mm -hmm. excellent program director. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, in a lot of my memos and paperwork, when I would tout WXDR to the university, it was like, look, this is what we do. We would broadcast live shows from the flight deck when they were out at the uh, airport. Right, right. In Wilmington, it was a jazz club. And they would have named jazz acts come through. And we would broadcast them. Yeah. We were doing hockey shows and baseball shows. Sports wasn't a really big thing, but we had our own news department. We were doing uh, news broadcasts in the morning and the evening, and the we they were reporting because a lot of them were getting credit on uh, some communications. Of course, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But there was a lot going on. When I look back, I'm like, wow, we really we were really trying, but. The writing was on the wall. We needed to have, once we upgraded to 1,000 watts, you needed to have a paid staff. You needed to have a consistency in Yeah, in the, pro the product. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. I think that was a good move, I think. But, you know, every every step is proper. It was organic. It grew from a small operation to what it is today. Yep. It's an amazing uh, thing happening down here, and I love it. Right. Right. It still goes on. And uh, I say on one of the other uh, interviews is that people will come back like after, uh, I think John Lupton said it, you know, people will come back after living in San Francisco or someplace for years and come back and say, oh, it's great. There's nothing like WVUD where we were. And we're like, what? There was nothing like that in San Francisco or Detroit or New York, wherever you were, you know, and part of it's excessive praise, but part of it's true. I mean, it's just we're very local and very homemade, and, mm -hmm. you know, so. Well, and I think um, the thing that I do, and I did especially back then, but I still do to some extent, is to really fly by the seat of my pants. So you use the word organic. There's this, like, evolution of programming that happens, and I've had people say, like, wow, you were, like, in my head. For half an hour, you played songs that spoke to me. You know, like, well, great. I, I was just having fun. I was just playing stuff I wanted to hear or 
turn right. me on. Right. I know what you mean. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you a story after we get off. But anyway, I know what you mean. Oh, I mean, the listeners are listening. They're really listening. You know, not all, but many are really listening. And radio is important for people who may, might be living by themselves or, or, or in a bad way or something like that. So you never quite yeah. know who's out there. Music is important. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I hear it even if it's in the background. So if there's something going on at work, I, I march up and ha- I have to change it because it, I'm listening to it. It affects right. me. And I have had that experience listening to WVUD where, wow, that was so amazing. It was incredible. You know, call them up and say, wow, you were just, you were just in my head. That was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to call your disc jockeys. It is. You know, with, and thank you very you much know, for the calls. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, what do you think? Is that anything yeah, else? Yeah, that's good. Is that good? Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks again, Linda. Thank you. It's funny, too, because I'm looking at over some of my paperwork since I'm going through all my old stuff. Uh, getting ready to purge it all. Some of these people I don't even remember. I have a um, WXDR programming philosophy, and this uh, is is about five double pages of type long by Larry Hammer. Larry Hammer was the program director at the time. And uh, he put it, I guess he put this out in 1977. Yeah, Larry Hammer. And... It has one thing that I'd like to share that I think was pretty interesting. It said, um, in the past, there's been a tendency for the DJ to perceive themselves as the star. As for egos, what listener really cares if George Frodo is doing the George Frodo happening for Monday afternoon? That's just all there is to listening. Emphasis, music. This also applies to other types of programs on WXDR. If you're out to make a big name for yourself, put pictures of your face all over campus, but don't desecrate WXDR with your ego trip. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How about that? That's, the, that's 1977. Very yeah. good. Yeah. The, the program directors were off, often very fervent about what the philosophy of WXDR was. I remember, I can remember the first time somebody... The first time a general manager came to the meeting and he was in a coat and tie. I shouldn't say the first time, but the first time since like I got here like in 76 or 77 or something. And and it was always super casual and stuff. And when the semester starts and this guy shows up in a coat and tie, I'm like, what is this guy doing here? Anyway, that's another discussion. The philosophy of WVUD has changed over the years. Uh, Now, eventually you became the general manager here, right? Well, first I was the music director. It's, it's, I mean, basically this, this block programming that we do has, has been, it has survived all the changes that this radio station has gone through. And it's really unique to radio stations across the country. Yeah. And I give credit to those guys who worked really hard to make this happen, like Pete Simon, Ron Krauss, those guys. Sure. Yeah, jumped to mind. You had to be there, but it was the mid seventies or the late seventies or whatever. 
granted, also at the time, a lot of models, fashion models, these women who were making a lot of money in the fashion industry started going into the recording studio and making albums. And it was really sheer dreck. And I can guarantee that some of those albums are still in this library. Mm-hmm. But wow. we've also had other homes. If you remember, there was a flood here once. Remember? There must have been, I don't uh, well, know. Well, we've had a couple. I, we've had water in the basement of several several sources for the water, which we won't go into. But, yeah, there, I, the first time I – Rick Lewis, who was also in the station now, came down one time just to say, I'm a listener and I have these records and let's talk. When he came down – that week, the station, we were working from lit lanterns. Do you remember that? There were lanterns down here. That was the only light. I mean, <laughs> they had power to the board, but there weren't, uh, in Prod 1, where we are now, there weren't any lights. So I remember talking to him by by lantern, actually. I mean, because the water had kicked out the electricity or something. Anyway, wow. Well, no, there was another time when, mm-hmm. because they were going to have to rip everything up and they were going to do some remodeling, and I think that's when they were going to maybe do change the rooms around down here, but... They moved us to one of those little tiny houses where that giant parking garage is now. On Academy Street, right. Little tiny houses. Right, right, right. And there is your little two turntables and your CD player. And oh my gosh. Do you have radio dreams? Uh, No, you know, I don't. Actually, George Stewart and Al Engberg were in a dream of mine a couple weeks ago, but. I won't go into that, but I no, I don't really have radio dreams. Oh no. my gosh, I wonder if other DJs do. I guess for as long as I've been doing radio, yeah, it's it's usually a nightmare. It's usually a radio nightmare. I'm like in my bedroom and I can't find music, and there's a lot of dead air. God forbid there's not dead Whoa, air. Wow. Oh yeah, or you I can't to... get to the station. One time, David Die up at WXPN was listening to my show, and I would play music, and he would say something about that song and play something as a counter to it, and I'd run and listen to what he was playing. Oh, my gosh. Wow. These oh, are, yeah, I have crazy. These are detailed dreams. Crazy radio dreams. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good story. Wow. It had to do 1 to 3 in the morning or 3 to 6, and you had to, rec- you had to tape your show and then give it to the the program director to listen to well you know i've been already doing radio now for years went out there in 88 so what is that that's from 75 to 88 yeah 13 years right wow yeah so you come back to wilmington yeah after doing some radio at kgnu i did did some radio there but there was one song that we used to sing a lot when i was growing up it came out in 66 by a guy named napoleon the 14th. Oh, yeah. And it was, they're coming to take, take me away. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I was just talking about it earlier with a coworker of mine, and he's young enough to be my son, and he used to sing it when they were kids. Wow. So I guess it's just one of those songs. If you haven't heard it, you really need to hear it. They're coming to take us away. Hee hee, ha ha, ha ho, to the funny farm. Right. And you know what? It's about a guy whose dog runs away. Um. Whatever. Yeah, it was right. It was some Warner Brothers executive, I think, who made the record kind of as a joke. It was all like it was just marching. There were no instruments in it. It was like marching. Yes, exactly. And they play. With, I think it didn't last too long on the radio. It was perceived as making fun of the mentally ill. So they it didn't it stopped getting airplay, but it kept selling as a record. It I guess. did. Yeah. It it, mm-hmm. it made it to um, number 36 on the Billboard charts. Wow. And um, it's funny because my mother used to say, you're going to put me in Farnhurst. 
when, as little kids, we were aggravating her, you're going to put me in Farnhurst. And of course, we didn't know what Farnhurst were, was until we grew up a little bit, became a little older, and she meant, you know, the nut house. The mental facility, the right <laughs> psychiatric facility. So that was a great song for us to sing. Also called the Seven Stacks. but Oh, I never heard that. Yeah. All right. I think we are done. So let's give ourselves an outro here. Um, so I'm going to say, well, Linda, you've had um, um, a long and varied life uh, connected to WVUD and, the, and the, the Delaware music scene. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming out. And um, we'll see you down the road. Well, I guess we should end, too, really by saying you're getting ready to move, right? We're, if the we're, in universe, the, we're in the fall of 2019. Let me just say that. Go yes, ahead. Yes, okay. if the universe continues to cooperate. And it's been a brilliant uh, trip so far. Uh, yeah, I'll be moving to Mexico to a little drinking village with a fishing problem just south of Cancun. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they describe it. That's how they say. It's got a lively expat community of uh, varied age differences. So there's, uh, you know, toddlers to elders like myself. And it has a little radio station right downtown. I know nothing about it, but when I did tune it in, uh, there was it was a Mexican Elvis singing a song, so some recording. So I'm looking forward to taking my music to Mexico with me. Maybe they haven't heard Aqualung yet. Yeah, maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> All right, Linda, thank you very much. It's been really fun. Oh, this has been a blast. Thanks.